Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chandler. Welcome back to the Food and Faith Podcast. This is Derek Weston, and today my guest is Isabel Ramirez Burnett. This conversation is a part of the Just Kitchen project that Anna and I have been working on, and Isabel's input really helps solidify some of the ideas for the book. Isabel is a national board-certified health coach specializing in adults and seniors. She initially became a health coach to better understand how lifestyle changes could impact her own set of chronic conditions. After great success, she started working with individual clients and groups, as well as partnering with a broad range of medical professionals to help clients achieve their own health goals, implementing ancestral health principles of movement, diet, time and nature, circadian rhythm, and more with food as a central pillar of wellness. Isabel believes in providing her clients with the proven methodologies for behavioral change, keeping up the latest science on the management of chronic conditions, including hypermobility disorders. She is passionate about helping clients achieve their optimal state of wellness. On a personal level, these principles have allowed her to enjoy her passions for hiking, gardening, foraging, dancing, traveling, and spending time with friends and family. To Isabel, this is not a job, it is a calling that she does with devotion and respect. Just a quick reminder that you can support the podcast on Patreon. Just go to www.patreon.com slash foodandfaithpodcast and choose a level. Any amount helps. Okay, here's my interview with Isabel. We are here with Isabel. Isabel, thank you for being on the show. Appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for having me. My so, pleasure. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so um, let us start the way that we oft, always do is by asking... What is your geography? What are the places, lands, food, music, culture that have shaped you to be the person that you are today? Oh, that's a fantastic question. So I am currently located in um, Rhode Island in the United States, and I have lived here for the last 26, 27 years. Um, but I was originally born in the Dominican Republic, um, and I lived there until um, I was almost 20. Um, so the culture and the music and the food of the Dominican Republic um, has exerted, you know, an, a great amount of influence over, you know, what I do, what I like, how I conduct myself, the things that I go back to. Um, but I also always grew up um, really looking into the American culture, listening to music in English um, and just, um, you know, uh, being able to enjoy that as well. Um, I married someone who is from Rhode Island and uh, two out of my three children were born here, too. So it's, it's a great mix. Um, mm. I enjoy all kinds of music, but you know, those were probably the two things that have the most influence. And, and for those who might not have a lot of familiarity, what would, what would, what are some things that you were, would say are um, emblematic of Dominican culture that you were, you would say are things that have stuck with you and, and have shaped, shaped you? Uh, the inability to stand in line at the supermarket and all of a sudden listening to merengue and salsa and uh, not being able to stand still <laughs> and not care about what anybody else says. You have to at least move your feet a little bit, move your shoulders, tap, you know, whatever <laughs> seems appropriate at that time. <laughs> but um, I remember growing up and my kids just tugging on me and just 
you know, my kids growing up and they're like, mom, do you really have to dance in the middle of the supermarket line? <laughs> like, like, I yes, can't yes, help I do. It. <laughs> yes, I can't help it. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Um, so let me, uh, we're, uh, as, as you know, um, working on this book project uh, about cooking and about, uh, about the kitchen. And so um, can you describe for me what was uh what was the kitchen like that you grew up with what was uh who cooked in your home what was what was what was cooking like in in your home of origin and um yeah what do you what do you what do you remember what are like kind of sensory things that you remember from your kitchen growing up Mm, talking about this always brings a lot of warmth to my heart um i grew up in a multi-generational Um, household. So when I was really young, um, well, actually up until close to my 20s, I lived with my great grandmother and my grandmother were both in the household. Um, My great grandmother was already getting old. So her cooking, um, you know, contributions were getting less and less. But we always looked forward to the days where she was cooking something, even though my grandmother's cooking was just absolutely amazing. Um, But with my great grandmother, I learned to make butter. Um, I learned to um, pasteurize milk at home. Um, I learned a lot of the ferments that I do today. So those are always really, really fun memories. Um, My grandmother was pretty much the matriarch of the family. um, And, you know, she absolutely ruled in the kitchen. So I remember being immersed, um, you know, hanging out by her skirt and being in the kitchen, whether we were cooking inside or outside. Um, my family has always been a very, um, culinarily adventurous family, both uh, because of culture and because, uh, there just seems to be a curiosity about food. Um, and my father actually worked in, uh, customs his whole life. So he was always given a lot of things that, you know, people try to sneak in (laughs) that weren't supposed to, (laughs) you know, be brought into the country that got confiscated. But instead of throwing those things away, you know, as they were supposed to do, people would, you know, bring them to, um, to their houses. So I got to experience a lot of that with my father bringing it home and with my mother, uh, with my grandmother, um, actually cooking it. Um, we had an outdoor oven and, um, it was a brick oven where we cooked, you know, a tremendous amount of things. Um, in the Dominican, it's virtually perpetual summer. Mm. So we cooked outside year round. And then we had something that's called a fogón, uh, in Spanish, which is a little, um, uh, wood stove, sort of speak, that's uh, down low in the ground where you would, you know, sit around it and, and squat around it and just cook your food in there and talk and eat right out of it uh, hmm. when the food was done. Um, I had, I get, so I got to experience, you know, observing all of this cooking from a very early on. My grandmother would wake up at five in the morning and she would start preparing the meals for everyone to take with them 
whether they went to work in the case of my father or for school in my case. Um, and she would prepare all the meals for the day. Everything was, you know, homemade from scratch. Um, also, before I was in school full time, I would go with her to the market every day. So we had, you know, what we now call a farmer's market. But um, in those days, there were, uh, and I'm dating myself here, uh, there were no supermarkets, you know, as a norm. So we went to the market every day to get what we were going to cook for that day. And I remember, you know, so many days just walking, holding onto my grandmother's hand um, and work, you know, walking two or three miles um, round trip to the market and then coming home and cooking all of that food. Um, I started sort of learning to cook formally when I was about 10. Um, and we had a farm actually that was, um, you know, farm slash vacation home and uh, where we had a lot of animals. So everything was processed from the start. We grew pigeons in the backyard. Um, we had chickens. We had a large vegetable garden. But when we had um, the farm, um, we'd be there every single weekend and, you know, we'd get everything that we need for the week. So cooking from scratch and cooking fresh food has just been part of my upbringing. And I, I celebrate that a lot. The contributions from uh, my mother, although completely different, were also very influential. My parents divorced when I was two years old, and um, I stayed with my um, with my dad, which um, he was in a multi generational household, and that's where my grandmother and my great grandmother lived. Um, so I grew up with the two of them. But I would see my mom on the weekends, and my mom would pick me up. And she was always very interested in um, international cuisine and just uh, getting to experience um, the different uh, cuisines that were, you know, from different parts of the world that were available in the Dominican. So we would often um, either go to restaurants that uh, were from places around the world. One of the most um, vivid memories I have is from a Cuban uh, restaurant um, where my love of coffee developed. Um, and another one that was an Indian restaurant um, that my mom um, was absolutely in love with. Um, and if we weren't going to restaurants, we were um, cooking at home, but my mom almost never cooked the traditional Dominican meals. She was always um, either cooking something completely exotic or she was adding that flair to whatever um, she was cooking. So that was a huge influence as well. Mm, mm. Um, it sounds like cooking was pretty communal for your family. Like I think so often we think of um, sort of in modern kitchens, cooking is, is very, is a very isolated thing. There's one person who's like, this is my territory, but it sounds like, it sounds like that's not what you grew up with. It sounds like that was a, a, a place for family to gather as, as cooking was happening. Is that, is that, am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. And even though my grandmother was sort of like the, the main point of the cooking, we all helped her in different ways. Um, I was always by her side in the kitchen whenever I wasn't 
in school, but there was also another element of that communal part of food, which was uh, there was not a day, I can't remember, that my grandmother didn't both uh, give a meal to the neighbors, whether it was something special or not. Um, and sometimes, and she rotated the neighbors. So sometimes it was our very next door. Sometimes it was three houses down. Sometimes it was 10 houses down. Um, and also cooked extra to make sure that if somebody stopped by after lunch or you know, after uh, dinner in the afternoon, that there was enough food to share with whoever, mm. you know, stopped by, whether that was a complete stranger who, you know, my dad had just met and was bringing by to meet the family, which is, which was very normal to us, <laughs> um, you know, or a cousin that, you know, just happened to be close by and stopped in the house. It was always that extra amount of food. And then we did a lot of gathering. I mean, weekends um, were always gathering with extended family to cook and to eat together. Um, when we had the farm, um, there were literally large bosses of people um, that would go from extended family and friends to go cook, to hang out, to, you know, just have a good time with, with family and, um, and friends. Yeah. Wow. That's beautiful. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Especially the idea of cooking just kind of random meals for whoever might happen to show up. I just kind of, that's a, that's a beautiful image. Um, so before we uh, get into the present day, um, you mentioned that you grew up in a with a farm on a farm and that processing things from the farm was a part of your um, part of your learning to cook and a part of your um, I, I I'm curious about that because I think that again, for most Americans, we are so distant from processing our own meat from processing animals in, in any way like someone someone does that for us far mm -hmm. away and we'd, we'd rather be as far away from that as possible I, I'm really interested in in how that experience of of processing meat as, at a young age kind of shaped you and 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 what it how it influenced maybe how you feel about the value of the things that you ate that came from that farm or, or the, whether that was just did, was it just run of the mill or would it become something that, that had an additional importance to you as, as, or maybe has an additional importance to you now, as you look back? Um, yeah, the latter is um, definitely, you know, uh, I can now appreciate to me growing up, that was normal. That mm -hmm. was, you know, what most people did. And um, I didn't realize the value of it until I moved to the United States. And, um, you know, there's there's nothing like that, except for a brief of time that I spent in New York managing a farm where, um, you know, I had to um, get in touch with the processors and the butchers and all of that. But outside of that, um, I hadn't seen that in here. And most people, have a big aversion to certain types of meats, like organ meats, for example, mm -hmm. because, you know, they've never been exposed to it. So to me, that was very foreign. Um, and once I got to understand the landscape of, of um, the food industry in the United States, then I got to really appreciate um, what I grew up with. Um, I'm not afraid to 
you know, process an animal. I'm very grateful for the value that it brings and, you know, for the sustenance that it provides. Um, I'm not afraid to try just about anything. (laughs) (laughs) And when I mean just about anything, I mean it. (laughs) Um, We, you know, utilized animals, we utilized everything. Every, you know, scrap of food was utilized from taking the peels of fruits and either composting or fermenting with them, you know, to taking um, the blood of of an animal that was being processed and making blood sausages. So, um, and I, I had a little aversion to it, you know, in my teenage years when I, you know, kind of realized what this was, but, you know, once I processed and understood um, the value of what I had received, then that, you know, aversion evaporated. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think as we, as we try to think about the value of, of, um, getting back to healthier food ways, I think that having actually being involved in processing meat, I think is something that is something that more of us should experience, honestly. Um, I think it's, yeah. it's something that will, would be um, one, I think it would help us to just kind of appreciate the value of it more. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think it also, um, it just, it just keeps us from, uh, I'm, what I'm trying to say, um, like the disconnection that we have from nature and from the natural world, I think a lot of it starts with our disconnection from food and where food comes from. And so yeah. I think that that sounds like a really valuable experience. And I think for a lot of people, I personally had to go through a very difficult chronic illness process, you know, mm. to realize, because when I moved here, um, a young mom with a young you know, very young child um, and going into the workforce, I kind of sort of bought into um, believing that, you know, this is what developed nations do. This is great. You don't have to do all this. You can just go to the supermarket and get what you want easily, or you can go through the drive through and, um, you know, get whatever you want and not even have to cook it. And, and there were several years where this is what I practiced, but, um, because of the chronic illnesses that I have, it quickly cut up with me. Um, and I had to do a deep dive and realize, Oh, wow, this is, you know, what was I doing differently then that, Mm. um, I'm not doing that now that, um, is having such a bad influence on, on me and food was a huge part of that. Mm. Yeah. Well, that, that's a good segue um, into um, what from the kitchen of your childhood now shows up in the kitchen of today. Um, what's what, what, of what influences what, um, what maybe even specific foods, um, but what, what are the kinds of things that you grew up with that show up in, in, that we would see in your kitchen right now? So definitely seasoning, um, mm. you know, what we call adobo and uh, the um, sofrito, which is a way that you can make pretty much every meat and pretty much every vegetable, which is a combination of um, 
peppers and tomatoes and onions where you make a base and then you can add tomato sauce or you can make different bases with it. Um, and that's something that I use very frequently for my meats um, and sometimes for my vegetables. So that's always present. Um, my family absolutely loves and everybody that I, um, that I serve it to uh, loves Dominican beef, which is just stew beef cooked in that manner. So it makes a really rich sauce that you can put over rice or um, over anything pretty much. Um, soups, sancocho, which is a very hearty um, seven meat stew um, that is just an absolute life saver every winter. Mm. Um, that shows up very frequently. Um, and root vegetables, that is something that, um, you know, again, I disconnected from it from a while, but plantains and yucca um, and other root vegetables that are less common in the United States, but you can get in um, the Hispanic stores um, are, are things that are, you know, frequently found in my kitchen and that I tend to eat with a lot of frequency. Yeah, for mm. sure. Yeah. And and for you is your is your kitchen that same kind of communal space or or is that is that your space when you're when you're cooking uh, at home uh, now? <laughs> um, it it really depends. So for the last two years, um, my kids are back at home. Um, you know during the pandemic, so it has become that communal space a lot. My oldest son is a chef, actually. So oh, wow. You know, um, there's um, a lot of love for cooking in my house. And, you know, we cook together sometimes. We share a lot of meals um, with each other. Um, my youngest one actually made for the first time um, an entire meal by himself last night, which was amazing. Nice. Um, in the earliest days of our marriage, my husband always teased me that I was, um, quote unquote, the Italian grandmother because nobody could leave my house without taking some food home. <laughs> <laughs> so um, and, um, you know, friends and family have always had an open door policy to come to the house and, you know, um, eat and hang out and uh, cook together. Um, I've, I've done a lot of cooking with a lot of my friends. I find that, you know, because of schedules here, things are definitely more limited, mm -hmm. um, you know, and uh, it's hard a lot of the time trying to, to schedule time um, with friends or family to do that. But we do that every opportunity that we have. Um, my brother and sister just moved here from the Dominican last year with mm. their family. So that's been a huge renaissance into, you know, that type of environment. So mm. I go to their houses or they come to mine and um, we're eating together and cooking together and just uh, sharing jokes and having a great time around food. That sounds fun. Yes. Um, so what are, what are your kids getting uh, what are you passing on to your kids that was a part of your your childhood kitchen? Mm, that's a great question. Um, so I think for, you know, for my oldest, I think that love of cooking, it's mm -hmm. it's definitely um, been there. Um, and for my daughter, too. My middle daughter is a great cook and um, she loves the kitchen. Um, and, um, one of the things that I hope to pass on to them that I, you know, have emphasized for a long time now is in the value of, um, 
cooking from scratch and eating healthy foods and, you know, just not succumbing to the busyness and the struggle and, um, you know, just not doing the easiest thing when it comes to food, but, but value and that richness that comes from preparing meals and, and doing it yourself, nourishing your body through food. Yeah. Yeah. So you are a a board certified health coach um, and a lot of your work um, centers around food. Um, how did you find your way into that work? And you, and it sounds like your own health journey kind of led you that direction. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. So like I hinted to earlier, um, you know, when I moved to the States, had a young child, um, and went into the workforce. So I was pretty much, you know, driving through Duncan in the morning and then, you know, sometimes um, going to McDonald's or Taco Bell or fast food places, just thinking, oh, wow, this is just fantastic. Everything is so easy. You can just, you know, go to the supermarket and get chicken nuggets and get cereal and just have those things so readily available and and, and so easy. Um, And my my health started to decline significantly, a lot of fatigue, a lot of pain. Um, I had grown up with undiagnosed um, health issues, but they were, you know, insignificant compared to what I experienced after being here for just six months. Mm. Um, And, um, you know, I don't, I probably don't have to tell you about the struggles with the health system, but, you know, the, the, there were no diagnoses. After a few years, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. Um, and I was lucky enough to have a doctor who was not entirely holistic, but, you know, that did hint that food had some influence and that checked into levels of vitamins and things of that nature and uh, recommended certain supplements and things like that. So that's what kind of what started to open my eyes. Um, And then for the next, uh, I don't know, 15 years, it was just a journey of experimenting with um, food, reading a lot of books, going back into my roots and trying to incorporate that more and more. Um, I started to garden because when I started, you know, try to sourcing that type of food and healthier foods, organics and and things of that nature were still very expensive and not always available. So that's what drove me to to gardening. Um, And then I decided to take a health coaching class way back in 08 just to help myself, just to understand better what I was going through um, and, and how I could help my own journey, not intending to do it, you know, as a profession. But then, um, you know, I continued to struggle with trial and error and just, you know, because there were still a lot of things that were not diagnosed, that were not actually properly diagnosed until five years ago. Mm. Um, it was more of a roller coaster experience. But the constant that I knew is that when I paid very close attention to what I ate um, and I stayed towards the healthy or end of that, that I did feel better. Um, so that I continued doing. And then I just at one point decided to 
um, you know, share what I was doing, how it was helping me, how I was feeling better. Um, that story of cooking, you know, I would cook a lot and post what I was cooking on, on Facebook and people would ask me about it. So that's how I started to share with others. Um, and I, I enjoyed it so much. I enjoy being able to say to somebody, okay, this is what I'm doing. And having somebody come back to me and say, oh, I tried that. And that did, really did help. Hmm. Um, so that's when I decided to, you know, do this um, more full time and uh, help other people, you know, navigate this journey. Um, and it's not just food. If, if I were to say, you know, food is the only influence, I would be limiting it. Um, because once I got diagnosed, I realized that there were structural issues that I wasn't addressing before that really needed to be addressed. Um, but food really plays a central part of what helps me, you know, to stay better and what helps a lot of people because the food landscape that we have, um, people just don't realize how much it influences your biochemistry and how much it really can be a detriment upon how you feel day to day and feeling tired, having stomach issues, you know, having headaches, it just has become the norm. People don't even consider it being ill when they, you know, don't feel their best. Um, so that's, that's a long-winded way of mm. saying, you know, my desire is to really help people understand the factors that go into um, chronic illness. And um, even though you may not have, you may have something that doesn't have a quote unquote cure. There's a lot of things that can be done that can influence the day you feel day to day. Yeah. I, I think we're, we're, we're slowly gaining, um, a greater knowledge. What, what, what are sometimes referred to as the illnesses of civilization, um, whether that hypertension, obesity, diabetes, things like that. And, and we're, we're slowly beginning to connect the dots between diet and those things. Just kind of in your work, what are the major issues that you see that people are coming to your office or or over Zoom or however you're, you're meeting with them um, and, and coming to you and, and what are the struggles and, and how are you diet being the source of some of those issues? Mm, that's a great question. And I mean, for the population that I work with, it's generally people with complex chronic conditions. Mm. Um, and, and at that point, especially when it comes from uh, genetic conditions, which is what I tend to work with the most, um, it's not necessarily viewed as, you know, diet is the problem. Um, because we have, we separate between what's genetic and what we call epigenetic. So, you know, genetics, as they say, loads the gun and epigenetics pulls the trigger. So you may have the genetic predisposition for certain things, but that manifestation, um, if it manifests, can be different in different people, but it also doesn't have to manifest or, or do it to its fullest, fullest extent. Um, so what I try to work with with people is separating um, the, the notion that, you know, there's nothing that they can do, that this is incurable, that, 
you know, it's, it's whether it's a genetic condition or something else, because that's what they have been told. Um, and I lay the foundation for people to understand that a cure is not even, I'm not a doctor. So that's not what I'm aiming to do. What I'm aiming to do is get you to a point where you are um, exerting the behaviors that are going to give you the maximum amount of wellness on your daily life. So it allows you to do the things that you want to do. Now, you know, everything that we do in our lives has an effect, an effect on um, how we feel, how we perform, and what we can do. So food is at the basis of that because, you know, you have trillions of biochemical, um, uh, what do you call it, processes going on in your body at any given time. So, um, you know, I, I start by telling them, you know, people who have chemotherapy, for example, they're told uh, not to eat certain green vegetables because it's going to interfere with their medication. But then on the other hand, they're also being told that food has nothing to do with the process that they're going through. So how can we reconcile those two things? You know what I mean? Right. So everything that you eat is information. So that's going to determine what happens in your body at every level, at the cellular level. Um, so the best you can feed your body and the best you can provide that um, with some people, they like to liken it to computers, you know, garbage in, garbage out. So it's the same thing with your body. Um, I use an analogy very often of several cups and several cups that have, you know, one may have some holes in the bottom. One may be, I may cut in half and another one is just a full cup. And I show them when I fill it with water, you know, what happens? The cup that has the holes in the bottom, it's, it's going to leak right away. The ones that have, it's going to take much less time than the other one to be full. And I tell them, these cups, the different cups may be your genetics, right? But what's going into it, that's your lifestyle. So yeah, you may mm. see the exception of the person who ate terrible and smoked and lived to their 90s and they were just fine. But more and more, we're seeing the ones who are these leaky cups or these half cups, you know, who are people in their 30s and 40s are having cancer and, you know, type 2 diabetes and hypertension. And it's not a coincidence. It's because the way that we're treating our bodies with food, with movement, with sleep, you know, is influencing the amount of assault that our bodies can withstand. Mm. So let's separate whether you have a condition or not, just at the basic level, you know, anyone can benefit from doing these things. Um, and then the way from there that I tend to work with clients is, you know, starting with what's easier for them to implement, because we live in a society where we tend to look at things with a very short term range. And within that range, we want instant gratification. So for most people, it didn't take, you know, two days or three months for them to to get to the disease process that they're in right now. It's not going to take two days or three months for them to feel you know, the potential best that they could feel. So that's, that's again, 
one of the things that I need to lay as a foundation. This is a long-term journey. Your health is like breathing, you know, you don't just do your health. It's something that, you know, has to be with you for the entire duration of your life. So how can we incorporate those behaviors that are going to be beneficial for you into, you know, that long-term lifelong range and not make you feel like you're completely depriving yourself of, you know, living in modern society. Mm -hmm. So that's where we go from. Um, And those things have to be introduced sometimes one at a time, because when you're trying to change everything that you do all at once, you're, you know, for most people, you're bound to fail because, you know, that that's just not sustainable. and, And it's just not the way that we operate. So it really depends on where people are. But um, for most people, you know, they tend to start with food because that's where they seem to be feeling the worst effects. And they recognize that, oh, yes, when I eat this, my stomach is just, you know, terrible for the next two days, or I get nauseous, or I have noticed that, yes, when I eat this thing, I get joint pain, you know, and and my um, inability to do things just increases. So it's it's a it it one depends on the person, but two there are foundational things like I said that really need to be laid out. Yes. So, what I've just heard you said say are a couple of things that are very contrary to typical diet culture. Um, One, I hear you saying that a lot of these things need to be individualized, that a lot of these things are, are about the individual, about individual's genetics, about individual's history, about, and and it's not a one size fits all kind of thing. The other thing I'm hearing you say is that so much of, of diet and health culture are, we're going to fix you in three weeks. We're going to fix you in 10 days. We're going to fix you in a week. And, and you're making what you're saying, what makes a lot of sense to me that if you have two decades of poor eating of, of putting things into your body, it's not going to reverse itself in three weeks. It's going to be a process of getting your body back to the equilibrium Uh, it it must be hard for people I imagine to hear these things that are kind of antithetical to what you know there's there's so many quick fixes out there or the ideas of quick fixes or there's these one size fit fit one size fit all programs out there and you're 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 talking about something that just feels a lot more um, personal and holistic and, and, uh, that's more about lifestyle. Mm. So just, it feels, it just, it feels, feels different. And, and I guess in, in what I'm hearing is it, it, it sounds, it sounds more authentic. It sounds, it sounds, it sounds right that it would, it, these wouldn't be quick fixes and that there wouldn't be one size fits all. No, it isn't. And it, it does take a little bit of a deprogramming because people are bombarded with these messages and all the advertisements and, um, you know, something that the diet culture has done very well is link um, 
chronic conditions and the state of well-being of uh, the world, not just our nation now, um, to wait, you know? Mm -hmm. So everything revolves around, you know, lose 20 pounds or, you know, and you're not going to necessarily lose 20 pounds and, and um, you know, be rid of the things that are ailing you. Um, sure, losing 20 pounds in many people can have a very positive impact and help in many ways, you know, the, the way that you're putting on your joints or, you know, maybe your, that's all you need for your um, diabetes to resolve or go into pre-diabetes rather than full-blown diabetes. There's no denying that there are advantages to losing weight if you do need to, mm -hmm. um, but it's not a solution in itself. Weight gain is actually not an issue in itself. It's a symptom of other mm -hmm. things that are going on. Our bodies have been um, developed in a way that, you know, weight gain is a mechanism for survival, which a lot of people don't know. Mm -hmm. And in the face of the food abundance that we have, that survival was no longer necessary, but our bodies don't know that. <laughs> right. So, um, and the other aspect of diet culture is that the factors that lure you into, um, you know, eating a certain way, the convenient way, the fast way, the sweet way, the, you know, super abundant way, are not going to go away because you decided to do something different. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. going to be in your environment and it's going to continue to be unless we have, you know, some sort of catastrophic happening that eliminates all of it. It's going to continue to be there. So you're going to continue to go to a barbecue at your friend's house and have a super abundance of things. Mm -hmm. You're going to continue to drive past, you know, maybe three McDonald's on your way um, to home from work, those things are going to continue to be there. So it's a matter of learning how to incorporate into um, incorporate all of those factors and build that, um, you know, somewhat of a resistance because you are filling yourself with the right behaviors and the right choices that, you know, automatically eliminate the opportunity for choosing what's not best for you. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Um, and I, and I want to kind of tie this part of the conversation to the beginning of the conversation, because so much of um, what you often hear in the diet space or in the health and nutrition space is the need to eliminate some a lot of times what you hear is like the, the elimination of, of cultural foods, the, the elimination of foods that might have um, cultural importance, cultural significance that might be like um, part of celebrations or festivals. And, and I would think that with your background, doing your kind of work that you're probably really sensitive to thinking about how do people keep the foods they love, the foods that they enjoy and the foods that are important to them in their diets as they're also trying to get to health. So how do you, how do you, how do you balance that? Yeah, that is something that I talk a lot about because, um, you know, being sensitive to the, the cultural history of the people who are eating these foods is, is very important. Um, and that also ties into genetics, for mm -hmm. example. So, you know, it's, um, it's a known fact that, you know, people of Asian background, their genetics develop diabetes at a much lower weight 
than um, Hispanics or African-Americans, for example. So taking that into consideration at the genetic level is important, but I think it's even more important at the cultural level because there is a love and a, you know, a, um, an aspect of food that brings memories. Like I was talking about, you know, cooking with my grandmother and my great grandmother, and I'm not necessarily unique in that aspect. Um, so I think it's very important to um, not do the one size fits all. And I think that's when these things get, you know, eliminated right off the bat. Um, but to look at what's culturally appropriate for that person. But now that's not to say that even within that culture, certain things may be to uh, may need to be um, not eliminated, but maybe um, decreased or eliminated temporarily. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. if somebody is going through the process of uh, what's called leaky gut, which is a permeable, you know, gut, you're going to have things that maybe you eat very often, and that maybe because it's, you know, a food that's eaten often in your culture. Um, that it's now your immune system is reacting to it because of the state of the lining of your gut. So once those things uh, can be worked on and improve, then you can reintroduce those foods and see if that effect, um, that negative effect is, is lessened. But going to automatically put somebody on a general diet and eliminating everything that you know, they, they're culturally used to eating that they enjoy, um, can have a, a very negative effect, um, on that person instead of a positive one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would think that one of the things that you take into account is just joy. (laughs) I mean, and, and, and foods bring certain foods bring joy and they bring comfort and they bring, um, you know, there, there are those things that are, are beyond the, the measurable that, that food does for us on, on a, on a regular basis. Yeah. Everything is so integrated. Nothing exists in isolation and food is information, but it's also uh, warmth and it's also memories and it's also joy um, and it's and it's nourishment. So all of those aspects can be directly attributed to to food. Um, same thing with movement, um, for example. You know, movement is can be joyful if you're dancing. Movement can be um, distressing if you you know go for a jog after a hard day of work. There are so many aspects of. Uh, one thing, but we tend to try to oversimplify everything and put it into a box and just, just like, you know, um, exercise is, is what everybody looks at when we think of movement. Movement is so much more exercise is just one aspect of Mm. movement. We gotta, we gotta start thinking about things with a much broader, more nuanced view and understand that, you know, we've been fed a culture of just instant solutions and black and white thinking um, that is just not biologically compatible. That's not how our bodies function. <laughs> so yeah. we can't live like that and, and see the results that we're seeking. Yeah. And just very quickly, outside of 
outside of food and and movement what are some other things that you consider when you're looking at a person and and helping them think about making health decisions that are right for them Mm, community and relationships Mm. is a big one um especially for people with um chronic illnesses uh they tend to get very isolated um you know a lot of the friends that they used to have maybe when they weren't as ill are not necessarily as close because they've stopped you know attending events or not being able to quote unquote be reliable when you say you're going to go out and do something because you don't feel well um so that's a huge aspect um i think that um i don't remember the specific statistics but it looks like people who are lonely die sooner than, you know, people who smoke, I think mm. is, is what wow. it said. So um, loneliness is a, is a huge factor and trying to rebuild, you know, relationships. People don't always feel comfortable um, telling others what they're going through, but you don't have to give a lot of details just to let somebody else know that, you know, you have certain limitations and, if you cancel um, an event is not because you want to, it's because you're not feeling well or letting that person know ahead of time that, um, you know, maybe you're tentative because you don't know how you're going to be feeling that day. So teaching people to learn how to navigate the challenges of relationships that come with chronic illness and building community in a way that's positive, it's a very important aspect of um, what I do. Um, Sleep is another one that's Mm. huge. We have, you know, TV and Netflix and, you know, lights at all hours of the day. And it's so easy to get uh, distracted, but it's also um, for people with with illnesses, you know, to, have a very disruptive sleep schedule because of how they feel. Um, but sleep can improve a lot of the symptoms and um, it's, it's a hard one to tackle, but it is possible. So that's another thing that uh, we work on. Um, and then stress, stress is, you know, has definitely uh, very measurable consequences hormonally so um, it's important to learn to manage because, again, like with food, we're not going to escape it. You know, right. it's part of our world. It's part of modern society. It's there to stay. So it's a matter of learning how to um, co-live with it and mm. be within it without becoming it. Um, and, and that's, you know, everything's integrated. There's not, you know, even though one thing may have much more of a weight for one person, that doesn't mean that, you know, one thing is going to fix it all. We have, we are biological beings that um, have a lot of needs and that um, our bodies function based on uh, many factors. So we have to uh, take them all into consideration and, and become that the whole beings that we are meant to be. Mm. Yeah, that's really well said. Um, feels like time has kind of flown by, um, but I, I do want to wrap up by asking the question that we always end with, which is um, considering all the things that we've talked about, what what gives you hope? And not not hope that um, not hope that 
ignores the problems of the world or problems that you see in our society, but but hope that gets you out of bed to work and do the kind of things that you do and and to face those challenges uh, head on. Hmm. Um. There's a lot of things that give me hope. I'm a I'm a very hopeful person, I guess, by nature. Um, you know, life itself gives me hope. The the fact that you know life is a um, even when it ends is the opportunity to give life to something else. Um, the continuity of life um, in whatever capacity that is gives me a lot of hope. So it's not the end necessarily because it's my end. That just may be the beginning, you know, for a flower um, where I'm buried. So that that has always, you know, given me a lot of hope. But nowadays I'm getting a lot of hope from seeing a lot of young people just challenge the status quo um, and think in so many different ways and be nuanced and, you know, think about today's problems in a way that, affect people globally, not just how to, you know, what's in it for me. <laughs> um, that's, that's something that I'm, I'm looking at with a lot of, a lot, a lot of hope. And I think that's, you know, if we continue in that direction, um, we can do so well. Yeah. Well, Isabel, thank you so much for your time. Um, is there any way that people can connect with you or work that you're doing or anything of that nature that we can, we can share with folks? Oh, thank you. Thank you for that opportunity. I am on Instagram at supersized wellness ESA. That is super sized with um, past tense wellness ESA. Um, and I am also, um, you can reach me by email at supersized wellness at gmail.com. Um, and I am actually launching the supersized wellness podcast this week for uh, people with uh, complex chronic illnesses. Um, but, you know, everybody will be able to get um, a lot of information in regards to health and wellness. Fantastic. Send me a link to that. And I will put it in the show notes when we, when we release this. Will do. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate all the wisdom that you have to share with us and uh, getting to hear your story. It's just really grateful for your, uh, for your time and for your presence here. Thank you so much. And thank you so much again for having me. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, The Garden Church, and The Keep Until. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.